This message comes from NPR sponsor Total Wine and More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine and More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. When people go right, I always tend to go left. Welcome to The Limits. I'm Jay Williams. And that is Hollywood powerhouse Tracy Oliver. Let me tell you, even if Tracy tends to go left, she is always headed in the right direction. Her self-assured contrarian streak started when she was just a young girl. Growing up in South Carolina, she put on a Stanford sweatshirt and declared to her family at 12 years old, that's where I'm going to college. That's a tough one for me because the rest of her family went to Duke, but more on that later, I digress. Tracy made good on her promise and got to Stanford as a freshman in 2003. As luck would have it, she was in the same class as Issa Rae, and they quickly became each other's thought partners and support in the school's tiny drama department. They sensed each other's drive and desire to tell black stories in a whole new way. Together, they made The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, the smash hit web series that was the precursor for Insecure. But while the internet clamored for more content, studios lagged behind. Tracy and Issa were discouraged by the executives who spoke to them with blatant sexism, colorism, and racism. They were told their work had no place in the mainstream, and you can guess exactly what that meant. One exec in particular looked Issa in her face and said, no one wants to look at you, like on their television screen, and said that she wasn't attractive enough and that she's an internet star, but not a TV star. You see, that kind of negativity only fueled the fire in Tracy. She stayed on track, committed to telling black stories with levity and authenticity. Within a few years, she would be writing with Kenya Barris and ABC. And when Tracy was told that movie she wanted to create already had a writer, did she give up? Oh, hell no. She got the gig, and that movie became the now iconic Girls Trip. This dress is a mosquito net. Then maybe you'll catch something in it. Yeah, man. Lisa, you look like somebody Puerto Rican grandmother. See? Now, men are almost anything, but not you in that outfit. In 2017, Girls Trip became the first movie written by a black woman to gross over $100 million. The first one, period. Tracy's one of the goats just for that. And she was just getting started. Because Tracy now not only wields immeasurable talent, she has also proven that black stories are in no way niche or out of the mainstream. Yeah, $100 million can shut up any critic. Her latest major project is the Amazon series Harlem, which she wrote and created and executive produces alongside the likes of Amy Poehler and Pharrell. Harlem showcases a beautiful signature of Tracy's work, centering on the friendships of black women. Tracy also shows the everyday joys of black life, not just the trauma that so many projects tend to harp on. That's a contrarian spirit in Tracy again. In this instance, doing the work of adding so many layers to the black overall experience. We talked about how Tracy has risen to this level of success and her production company's eight-figure deal with Apple that she signed just last year. We also got into it about how she navigates Hollywood and how she stays true to herself and grounded in a relentless industry. Trust me, I know. So let's get to it. Here's my conversation with the one and only Tracy Oliver. Tracy, first off, thank you so much for doing this. You look amazing. How are you? Thank you. I'm really, really good. It's a beautiful day in New York. So I have to tell you, I've been very excited to talk to you. You and my producer, Lena, were just speaking before we started filming this live. And um, 
she actually told me about a clip that I went back and I watched uh, this morning on YouTube, which is the College Wheel of Fortune. Hi, Tracy. Uh, Tracy Oliver from Columbia, South Carolina, yes. but going to school at Stanford. Hopefully you will see me on television one day. And I have to tell you, you made it to the final round. You were giving four words in total and ended up with four letters to go off of. I watched the clip, and <laughs> the fact that you got my gift to, my you, gift to you at the buzzer. How did you get that? It was like Pat Sajak didn't know. He was like, how the hell did you get that? And it reminded me of like one of these critical clutch shots that an athlete makes down the stretch where somebody's like, how did he or how did she make that? Like what to me, like what went through your mind when you were able to come out, come up with that out of thin air? Lena, I'm going to kill you, first of all, for showing that. (laughs) I have not talked about that maybe in like 15 years, but um I feel like sports is like the perfect analogy for that because Mm. it really, I don't know if you can relate to this, but it felt almost spiritual. Yeah. Like I remember when my mom was, because she was in the audience and she was like, how did that happen? And I just felt like the universe where I felt like there was a higher power that just kind of like made it make sense in my head. And I just said it out loud. It was really weird. But, and another weird thing about it and not to get too kooky I I love Cookie though Tracy. You so do. Give it to me. Yes. Okay. Um, so I started to watch Wheel of Fortune with my grandmother, and mm. she passed before I got into the show, and so I always felt like me getting on there was kind of like a nod to her, and wow. then when the puzzle was my gift to you, it almost felt like that was her. It was weird, but I, it almost felt like she was there. Um, so that was something that I always like took away from it was that even though she wasn't physically there, she was there in spirit. It's funny that that's life though, right? It's, Mm -hmm. um, if you pay attention to signs that are given to you, I mean, first off, the fact that my gift to you, that's Mm -hmm. your grandmother's show, the world colliding at the perfect time. It's almost like destiny. That's exactly where you are supposed to be at that given time. Yes. And I think even since then, I've been big on synchronicities and nudges and just following my heart and intuition, even if it doesn't make sense to me all the way, I just kind of go for it. But it's kind of worked out really well when I do that. But I sometimes am hesitant to admit it out loud because I think a lot of people are not as spiritual or don't live their life in that type of way. So yeah, even, even the Will of Fortune was that for me. That's such an incredible, powerful story to will something into existence. And obviously you following your intuition and getting there. But I want to talk about the origination of this process for you to get into what you're doing now. And obviously you're extremely successful. But I want to go back to the 90s for a second when there were so many black comedies on TV, like The Fresh Prince, Living Single, Moesha, Martin, and the list goes on. But what did it mean for you to see those narratives on screen as a kid? It meant that it was possible for black people to just have careers in that space and to be storytellers. And weirdly, a lot of those 90s sitcoms didn't have black writers. Hmm. So the representation was there on screen, but a lot of them didn't necessarily reflect the on-screen diversity behind the camera. And Growing up in South Carolina, I extra didn't know how to navigate it or who wrote those shows. I think because of social media now, writers have become more public. So you kind of 
see a path or you see the people behind it, but I just didn't know that. And then when I started to get into it, I was like, oh, there's a long way to go for like creators and writers, but I at least had hope um, from growing up, I think in like the 90s heyday of black entertainment. And so it gave me hope that I could even go into it, even though I had no clue how to start. And I had no inclination growing up in South Carolina that I would ever even find my way, but somehow it worked out. From South Carolina to Stanford. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, first off, tell me about what Stanford meant to you. How did you find your way there? And especially how did that time in media and in college set up for the foundation of your early career? I, my dad's going to kill me if I don't say this. So I was like, me and my dad were obsessed with you when I was in Wait, high school. me? Yes. Stop. I'm not Stop, even Tracy. kidding. No, I have to say this because he's going to kill me. So my dad went to Duke um, and my sister went to Duke and like my How did we lose family- you? What happened? How come you did? What happened? I know. I know. It was a whole thing, but again, when everybody goes right, I go left. So oh. I picked Stanford on the random. I'm not even kidding. When I was like 12, I heard it was a good school, and then and I heard that it was in California, and I was like, well, California sounds fun. And so then my mom said I just started to wear Stanford shirts around. <laughs> I had n- never been there, had <laughs> literally just wearing the shirt around. It just made no sense, but I picked it out. And then, I don't know, at at 17, 18, I applied for it and got in. And then I ended up just like going to Stanford. I wish there was a better reason for it, but that's truly it. (laughs) So, uh, but I'm liking this whole contrarian attitude, though. It's like, uh, it, it seems to have gotten you in a lot of incredible places with that mindset. So take me to Stanford. First off, I can't believe we missed you at Duke, but that's okay. Your career is working out very well. Um, It was a bit of a culture shock when I got there, because even though I had manifested it and thought that it was meant for me, I hadn't actually spent a lot of time there and didn't know what I was getting myself into. So my immediate reaction was, it it changed, but my immediate reaction was, I don't belong here. And Mm. I should have stayed in the Carolinas, like I don't belong here. And then eventually that thing and me just kicked in. Um, that like competitive spirit where I was like, no, you're gonna fight your way through this and you're gonna belong here. And then I just did. I started to like carve out a path like in the arts there. I started like a theater company. Um, my freshman year I met Issa Rae. And while we were there, we just kind of started to collaborate and figure out like how can these two unlikely black women forge a path in an industry that no one wants us to be in because at that point we were not in the 90s heyday there was nothing with black women on the air in particular um not even really black men but it definitely wasn't black women on the air um so again it was like you're fighting this fight that you don't know if you're going to be able to like win, but we were both down for like the, the hustle and to try it out. But I do feel like once again, it was a, another, hmm, maybe we were supposed to like connect on some level. So Tracy, it, it, it's on this show. I've gotten a chance to talk to some pretty incredible people. Um, Maverick Carter being one of them 
who I kind of call him the architect of the design of LeBron James trajectory in his Uh business. And we really discussed in depth imposter syndrome. I had the same similar experience going to Duke. Um, You know, there were only about 20 black kids on campus. I naturally gravitated towards them, but kind of learning how to go in and out of different worlds, right? And becoming adaptive. Mm -hmm. How do you think you and Issa, obviously you guys, and we can get into context about what you guys are able to do, but how did you guys start that adaptability? And what was that process like for you both? Um, I would say we're both kindred spirits in the sense of she's not afraid of a no either. And when you're both not afraid of a no, like you kind of don't let a lot stand in your way. So that was something that we kind of just bonded over. And it was like, if Stanford's not exactly what we want it to be, we'll create the Stanford that we need to have to make us feel welcome. So we walked into a situation that wasn't laid out for us. Like, hmm. And then by the end, it was like, okay, let's use Stanford to our advantage. Like part of being at a school like this is like, you do have access to funding. You can apply for grants. People will like give you money to put on shows and stuff. And so then we just kind of created a world in which like we could write and produce and act and direct and but yeah you just you make it the experience that you need it to be and I think sometimes people feel like if something's not already laid out for them it's not for them but that just Hmm. means you have to create it for yourself and so in that way I thought it was empowering and I thought Stanford was the perfect place because not all schools have the resources to be able to give you what you need to thrive too (sighs) So good. So let's talk about creating that for yourself, just to provide context. 2009, 2010, you and Issa are making the misadventures of Awkward Black Girl. Um, YouTube is relatively new around that time. But talk to me about the grind of not only getting a show made pretty independently, but staying the course, even when it felt like no one truly believed in you. Yeah, it felt like, I mean, there was dark moments, too, because when you, the, the downside of graduating from Stanford and you're incredibly broke and all of your classmates are in medical school or law school and, you know, there's a path for them and you're working like minimum wage jobs to try to like just get by and there's no path for entertainment, your self-esteem suffers, <laughs> like your confidence like goes down and you're just kind of like, am I doing all this for nothing? Am I going to have egg on my face at the end of it? And There are also a lot of people, because they're afraid of doing what you're doing, who want to poke holes in it, who want to say, like, this is not going to work out. You guys are doing something stupid. And I am grateful that we had each other, but we would take turns with, like, low self-esteem or take turns with, like, hey, can you front this because I don't have it, you know? (laughs) So we were just Mm -hmm. kind of, like paying for stuff, borrowing. I would borrow from my family. She would borrow from her family. We would swear to people we were going to pay them back. And then we were like, please, God, let us be able to pay this back. Um, (laughs) But we were just like (laughs) going back and forth. But yeah, when you really have faith and also when something has to work out, when you put so much into it and it has to, you kind of like make sure that it does. That right there is the true essence of Tracy. 
you work crazy hard, you believe in yourself, and then you have faith that it's somehow going to all work out. Next up, we hear what happened with that web series and how she and Issa Rae reacted when a studio executive told them that they will only be internet famous and no one wanted to actually see their faces on TV. You can't make this stuff up. This is The Limits from NPR. I'm Jay Williams. Stay with us for this. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. The Capital One Venture X business card has no preset spending limit, so the card's purchasing power can adapt to meet business needs. Plus, the card earns unlimited double miles on every purchase, so the more a business spends, the more miles earned. And when traveling, the Venture X business card grants access to over 1,300 airport lounges. The Venture X business card, what's in your wallet? Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash VentureXBusiness. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXLlearning.com. History is intriguing, but unlike the present, it can feel far off. On NPR's Throughline, we bring it back to life. I will toss you in the air like a lion. I will leave no one alive in your realm. Go inside the stories from then that shape the world we live in now. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Tracy Oliver is now the kind of multi-hyphenate that is a Hollywood boss. She's a writer, a show creator, an executive producer, and she has her own production company. That's how you actually scale your business, my friends. But to get here, she's had to push through serious hurdles to make work that reflects who she is and more importantly, what she believes in. It's hard to imagine studios laughing Tracy and Issa Rae out the room, but that's really what it was like for them in the early days of their career. Back to my conversation with the great Tracy Oliver. Okay, Tracy, let me make sure I get this right while also providing some context to our listeners. Now, at the time, your classmates from Stanford were already getting jobs in medicine, law, technology, and making a lot of money, right? And here you and Issa are with the web series. And you guys are floating the production of Awkward Black Girl yourselves with funds that you didn't actually have? Take me back to where your mind was back then and what your mentality was overall. So we kind of had that mindset that we didn't do all this for it not to work out. And the reception was just so crazy from the very beginning. And that was what was shocking too, was that, wow, people are really, really clamoring for this. So then we had to try to figure out with no money how to maintain it. Tracy, what do you think was one of the darkest times that you guys had during that period where you felt like maybe, I'm not sure we can move forward? I would actually say, and this is a a weird moment that happened, but the internet was clamoring for it and it made a lot, we did a Kickstarter and we raised so much money to finish the season and like we had millions and millions of views. But then when we would go to meet with executives, they would say to us, that's cute that you guys have this internet following, but 
like one exec, one exec in particular, I still remember this meeting, looked Issa in her face. I was sitting right there and said, no one wants to look at you like on their television screen and said that she wasn't attractive enough and that um, she's an internet star, but not a TV star. And that for us was like, oof, you know, because it, it was like, it's one thing when you get like praise and stuff from the masses, but then we were like, so nothing we did mattered. That's what it felt like. It felt like a gut punch when he said that. And then also it was just like, so anti-black. He said this to your face? Tracy? Yeah. He's- yeah. It, it was, it was very, and he then said, you know, they want a Lauren London type. I remember it was Lauren London in particular that he said. And so Isa as a dark skinned black woman, mm-hmm. it was very obvious what that meant. And so to have to kind of unpack that with her and to be like, you're beautiful, f- that. Yeah, it was really, really upsetting and hurtful because that's the part of you you can't control. You know, you can do all the other stuff. But if someone just looks at you and says, like, I don't like how you look, like, what do you do about that? Because we were like, wow. Like, so the work itself doesn't matter. Um, and then when you hear that, it kind of makes you question if you have a place at all. So I would say, the, despite the success, the low point was it didn't matter. It was that moment of like not knowing how to pivot into something else. You know, Tracy, I, I, I talked to my mom about this because my mom was born in 1950. And, uh, you know, she worked her tail off to mm-hmm. get uh, multiple degrees to finally become a principal. And um, there were so many white people who are above her that just never thought that she could attain that. And they would say some of the most random, hurtful things. I mean, one, one principal in particular said, nobody like you will ever rise to the power or position that I'm at. And I remember hearing that as a, as a young child. Mm-hmm. Um, and it always, it always blew my mind. And I'm curious, I, I'm not sure how you guys reacted in that manner, but how did you guys keep your collective or your composure or did you we just kind of had to take a beat and be like well either we take this one guy seriously or we just say he's an idiot and we just keep going and we took that path of being like he doesn't know what he's talking about so I often wonder when Insecure came out like what he thought about it because I'm like yeah you know it's just like it's so crazy but and it just feels so much better when you like you beat them that way with success. Hopefully, he's not an executive anymore. But that's just me personally. I don't. <laughs> I, I've heard you say this before. Don't look at what's on the air to figure out what you want to do. Do the thing that's missing. Mm-hmm. What was missing in your mind when you were starting out, and what do you think is missing today? Mm. That's a good question. Um, so much was missing when when we finished film school. It felt like there just wasn't enough representation in general. And then in the comedy space, there just hadn't been like a platform for a black woman to be a lead in anything. You were always kind of like the second or third or fourth lead and were kind of like the funny sidekick. So you weren't given like a three-dimensional character like you were kind of always reacting to or responding to whatever issues the the white lead was going through. 
but mm. you never went home with that person. You never saw like the black person's family or got to know them in any way. So I was like, there's so much missing from these stories because we're not allowed to like go home with them and like see what their lives are like. So we're only getting like a glimpse of it. So I was like, what if we like had a show where you went home with the, <laughs> the black woman and you like saw like what her inner life is like and like what she's like outside of this workplace, if it was a workplace comedy or whatever. And it it shouldn't have been such a novel concept, but then it was. People were like, but who will watch that? You know, how how will people be able to relate? And I'm like, the same way that I relate to white women, you know, they're still women. I'm like, I can mm-hmm. still watch this and appreciate it for what it is, even if we don't have the same cultural background. So I'm like, don't just use that same logic here. So to me, I'm like, time and time again, we've proven that like black women can be relatable and can be enjoyed by the mainstream but that's always something then you had to like prove and now I would say even with proving it um if I ever try to go out in a new genre I'm starting over it feels like so they'll be like okay well now we know that black girls can be funny and can be in comedies but I don't know if we can put them in horror. I don't know if we can put them inside. I don't know if black girls should be in space yet. Like, it's always like something where you're like, okay, well, let me try, you know, to start this new conversation. So I would say now what's missing is just different genres. Um, They're more comfortable keeping you in something that's been proven before. So anytime you kind of like branch out of it, you have to kind of start back over and prove yourself all over again. How do you articulate that to executives, Tracy? And me and my friends always talk about the fact that, you know, to understand what black culture is like, you have to be around it. You have to have, hey, I don't have one black friend. You have to have multiple and hear their experiences and lean in the same way with your other friends. How do you find that commonality for executives to really listen Mm -hmm. to what you're talking about? And how has that changed from before to where you are now? Um, I would say it's still kind of an issue, to be honest. I think that... Still. Yeah. I think that you can have some executives that don't necessarily have any direct experience with black culture, but they're open-minded enough to employ people that do, or they are open-minded enough to say, this is not my experience, but this is yours, so I'm going to give you the leeway to do what you do for your community or to lean into your culture. So you do have some good executives like that who may not be of your world, but uh, like give you the creative freedom and trust to be able to do it. And then you have some executives that they don't care if um, they're not of your culture. They don't care if they don't get it. If they don't get it, it means it doesn't make sense and it doesn't work. And you just can't sell to those companies or you can't sell to those people. Um, So it just really depends and it's really sad, but (laughs) we have like group texts where you kind of even, if you talk to other creatives of color, you'll, they'll say like, Oh, this is a friendly room or this is a not friendly room or this person like (laughs) go to this exec because like he's married to a black woman. So he might get it. Like, you know, it's like, Oh, it's like that type of, I know it's, yeah, it's the blueprint, though. We need yes, it. Yes, yes. I want to. I want to set the stage for this because I've been dying to talk to you about this um, girls' trip, which you wrote and came out in 2017. Obviously, it was a game changer for you. You're the first black woman 
to write a movie that grossed over $100 million. Wow, that's, uh, just saying that out loud is beautiful. Just tell me about the journey about how you got there, Tracy. Take me through that process. Yeah. So anyone who knows me even for five minutes knows that I'm, I love to drink and have a, <laughs> and have a good time. Okay. So, Cocktail of choice? Cocktail of choice? <laughs> Do you have a go-to? Um, lately, I really like an old-fashioned because I'm getting grown and mature now. Um, okay. Yeah. Or like a Negroni. I'm, I'm getting so mature. It used to be just like Kool-Aid with vodka in it. Just like disgusting, <laughs> sweet stuff. But, you know, now I'm right. mature. The sophistication um, of the palate. I like it. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And I... The movie was like marketed or announced in Deadline as like a party movie with black women Mm. in New Orleans. And I was like, oh, my God, I have to (laughs) write this. So then I reached out and then was immediately told we already hired somebody. And I was so bummed because I was like, if ever there was a project for me, that would have been it. I went to drinks with a friend a year later and he happened to mention oh, there's this movie, Girl Trip, that I feel like you should be writing. And Mm. I said, oh, well, they hired someone already. And he's like, oh, no, I just heard it's back open again. I left drinks with him right then and there to go call and say, it's back open, I want in, and then was told again that, oh, well, they're already far down the line, like with a different writer, so it's probably not going to work out. And then I basically was like, please let me in there. I basically begged for the opportunity so much that the producer, Will Packer, was like, fine, let's get her in the room. And it was supposed to be kind of a formality to like, okay, we heard you, now get lost. And the idea was good enough for them to be like, okay, now we're going to advance you to the next round, which is to pitch to the studio. I pitched like it was like you having to win a championship. Like I went in there and laid it out like on the table. Mm-hmm. Maybe two hours after I pitched, my manager said, you're not going to believe this. You turned a bunch of no's into a yes. And so he was like, Universal is going to go with you. And I was like, what? And I was just, I was stunned. So you're, you're forcing it into will for yourself. That's beautiful. Yeah. And no one thought it was going to be a big movie, you know? So it was like. Including I, yourself? I always believe in myself more than everybody else. So I thought it was going to be big. Did I think it was going to be a hundred million dollars big? No, but I, it was only a $19 million budget. So I was like, we can make that back. So I, th- I thought we'd hit like 70. Um, what a great ROI. Oh my goodness. <laughs> right. Yes, I know. Oh my goodness. I, like everyone was underpaid because it was supposed to be a small movie. And then I remember opening weekend and I was like, watching the numbers come in and like Universal will send like the tracking and stuff like that. And I remember my mom called me in South Carolina and she was like, oh, it's a hit. White people are up in this movie. So she was (laughs) 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 my mom mom was doing her own tracking. And she she said, oh, no, it's a hit because she was like, I can't even get in here because she was like, white people are buying up rows and rows and rows of this. So she was like, it's not just a black movie. Like, girl, you got a big movie. I was like, that's crazy. It's incredible. Yeah. I was going to ask you, Tracy, does it? Because I said it. And, and, and sometimes, you know, people say things to me, obviously never at this degree, but like, oh, yeah, Jay, second pick in the draft. And you, you get used to hearing it. But 
I often found times where I would settle in and think to myself, damn, I was, regardless of how my career went, I was the second pick in the NBA draft. That's, in, that's incredible. So I, I mm-hmm. say that thinking, when I said to you, you are the first black woman to write a movie that grossed over $100 million. Has that truly settled in for you yet? And what does that come with? I didn't believe it at the time. I really didn't. It was the the fact came out on the internet. I I was on Twitter and someone tweeted, "Tracy is the first black woman to write a hundred million dollar movie," and I was like, "That's not true." I just was like, "That can't be true." So then I went on a mission to prove him wrong because I was like, "I don't want to claim this until like I've exhausted all of my search." So then I was like, "Shonda Rhimes, she wrote." Um, and I remembered she had written um, a Princess Diaries sequel and then mm-hmm. had done a Britney Spears movie. And I was like, one of those had to have cleared 100. So I looked at it and then it, it tapped out at like 80. And I was like, huh, okay. Hmm. So then I was like, okay, what about this movie? And so then I just kept <laughs> going and like looking at movies that like had black leads thinking, okay, well, this one had to have. And I, thought, I was like, coming to America. And then I was like, oh, white men wrote this. Okay, this movie, ooh, white woman wrote this. And mm-hmm. I just could not, and I was like, so every hit that had black people in it didn't have a woman behind it, a black woman behind it? I couldn't believe it. But I literally did a whole day of like trying to disprove this. And so then I was like, that is insane. <laughs> I'm the, I just could, I was like, how am I the first? It just was like crazy to me. I didn't believe it. Now here's a lesson for you. A competitive spirit that is relentless and refuses to hear no. That's all I could think about while I try to put myself in Tracy's shoes during all this. She is obsessed with writing this movie that she knows already has a writer, but she keeps her ear to the Hollywood streets and manifested it for herself. And even when Girls Trip was selling out in theaters worldwide, she was looking for examples of other black women who had done it bigger, but no one had. And Tracy was now on a girls trip of her own. And I can honestly say that none of this has gone to Tracy's head. Coming up, how Tracy stays grounded and groundbreaking after the doors of the entertainment world open up before her eyes. This is The Limits from NPR. Stay with us. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXLLearning.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. 
This message comes from Wondery. Hey, grown-ups, join the Cat in the Hat for a new podcast and weekly adventure. Listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Welcome back to The Limits, and we are about to hear Tracy Oliver talk about Black Hollywood and how to set healthy boundaries in a competitive and, yes, often toxic industry. But first, Hollywood tries to put Tracy in the box after her smash hit film, Girls Trip. So after that happens, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I would naturally expect for the world to open up. Did you find that to be the case that the world opened up to you? Or did you find it surprising that any of those doors remained closed? I would definitely say it was a lot easier to sell things post girls trip for sure, especially with black women in them. Because now I didn't have to face the, well, it's not mainstream. It's not, you know, going to make a return. It's a small thing. Once you make $100 million, people can't use that anymore. So that excuse went away. But the thing that was still hard was if I wanted to do something outside of Girl Strip. Even if you're like, I now want to do a black thriller like, you know, a murder mystery or something. They're like, ooh, that's that's not girls partying and drinking. I don't know if that is something you should tackle or I don't know if there's, like, money for that. So, so you still feel like you're in the box to a degree? Yeah, you're constantly having to prove yourself. And if you are a person that doesn't want to stay doing the same thing, because you can make a good living honestly never pivoting like if you just stay in your lane unfortunately uh, maybe some of gemini i don't know i get bored easily so i'm kind of like <laughs> nah i want to keep doing different things so it's interesting to me to try to do different genres and try to push myself to not just write maybe i'll direct like maybe i'll produce so i'm always trying to get outside of what people want me to do but when you do that you're constantly having to work hard and and prove yourself over and over again. So it's on, it's partially on me that I make my life so hard. Nisi Nash said something to me um, when I was interviewing her on my pod and we were talking about community support. And when I lived in LA for a short stint, I I saw for the first time what black Hollywood was like, and Mm -hmm. it's a real thing. Do you feel that what, what is black Hollywood meant to you? And where do you see yourself within that sphere? Hmm. I'm kind of a weirdo. I would say if you judged my content, you would say I'm totally up all through and like just in the middle of black Hollywood. But as far as like how I live my life, I'm so not that, hmm. um, that it's kind of a disconnect, I think, for people. So. And the reason why I say that is like, I'm not really into Hollywood type of stuff. So you kind of have to twist my arm to get me to go to like industry parties and to do like the, the red carpets and the smile. Like I actually think my strength as a writer is because I really like people and I like life um, Mm -hmm. outside of it. So I don't think that I would be able to write girl strip if I hadn't actually like been stumbling down drunk like (laughs) and gone you know abroad or gone essence but i that's my life like it's coming from an authentic place and so i 
I'm less interested in that part of black Hollywood. But if you looked at the work, you would say, oh, she's, you know, a key member of it. But mm. no, I'm kind of, I, my friends are outside of it and I don't tend to do a lot of industry stuff. And I can, I think sometimes it's very clicky in that way. And then people that move out there who are nerdy or not very cool or even not stereotypically black um, feel like they don't belong. Hmm. And so I always like point out to people that you can be on the outside, but be on the inside. Cause I'm, I'm that way too. I've seen a lot of people over the last decade that have been in entertainment kind of get caught up in the chase. And when things don't go well, it begins this dark, dark spiral. It's, it's not a friendly industry in that way. It can be really dark. There's a lot of suicides, a lot of drug use, a lot of um, substance abuse, and a lot of depression, a lot of dark energy where people are trying to take you out. And I'm not saying that to, like, you know, be negative. I'm saying it because, like, it's true, and you can be successful without engaging in that. Like, you can maintain your lightness. Like, and that's what I try to do. And I think by living outside of it, I'm able to maintain that, if that makes sense. So it's also for, it's for mental health reasons. Yes. No. And that's something that we have to value and cherish. And I mean, I've seen so many athletes, entertainers that get consumed with that world mm-hmm. and always feeling this need to be seen. Yes. Yes. To, and it's that's like, what it is. But I, yeah. I already see you though. You know, yeah. I see you. I don't need to see mm-hmm. that alternative version of you. That's, I think that was very well said, Tracy. Um, one of the things that I've been on the verge of, of doing is, you know, with a couple of different athlete partners of mine is creating a, a production company. And the value of ownership, I think, is, is so mm-hmm. important as we kind of take the next steps in, in, in what we're doing economically and First off, congratulations to you because I know your production company, Tracy Yvonne Productions, secured an eight-figure deal with Apple in 2021. Mm-hmm. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, I think that's incredible. I, what led you to find your own company and what what has the mission been? Well, for me, I knew that I wanted to expand. I was getting to a point where... Again, it's that intellectual curiosity and like wanting to just have my hands in so many things, but I'm also one person. So it just felt like a natural kind of like transition into a production company because I wanted to be able to do so much anyway. And I'm very loyal. I like to surround myself with people that I know have good character and that also have live. Like, I'm so my executive is a college friend um, that was transitioning from being a lawyer into being a producer. So it was kind of a, like a non-traditional choice, but I wanted someone that I could trust and that I valued their opinion and that they lived a real life. And so Hmm. together we just kind of make it our mission to find projects that are entertaining. And the reason why that's so important to me is there's so much, attention placed on black struggle and black pain all the time. And I was just like, I just like sometimes sitting in a theater and laughing and like, and forgetting about my 
problems and there's something very fun and escapist about the world of cinema. So let's not exploit like black pain and black struggle all the time because there's so much more um, to us than that. And so that's first and foremost, our mission is to find things that like are actually entertaining and uplifting. Um, It doesn't have to be heavy or important, like just like friendships or love stories or, you know, thrillers that are, you know, fun to watch. So we look for things that are entertaining. Um, And then I also try to find, I guess, spaces that are not overdone. Hmm. Um, I don't want to be like competing in a space that everybody else is in. So again, everybody goes left, you go right. Yes. (laughs) When do you find time for Tracy? And who is Tracy (sighs) without what you do? Mm hmm. The time part is hard. Like you have to really, really try to carve it out. And I wasn't always good at it. I'm getting better at it now. And that's because I've, I think COVID kind of exposed that to me. Um, I think COVID kind of exposed that to a lot of people, but it pointed out how little what we do matters. Like, (laughs) because it could all end so quickly that it just called into question to me, like, you know, I, before COVID would be like, oh, I'll see my mom at Thanksgiving or I'll, you know, catch up with my friends, like, you know, whenever I get through this and all of a sudden when you can't see people or like pre-vaccines, I was genuinely worried if my parents would survive. And I was like, wow, you had an opportunity to see them, to just hop on a flight and see them freely for years. And, and, and now it's like, you may not be able to, um, and you just don't know how that's going to work. So what that did for me coming out of it was like, oh, I got to prioritize this stuff. I, I think one of the challenges that I've had over the last two years is, I don't, I don't know if you see it this way, Tracy, but I don't look at what I do as work. And yeah whether it's with my podcast, whether it's me on TV, my production company, things that I like to get invested in. It's just, it's how I breathe. Um, Mm. But it's been really hard for me, I think, finding this sense of self. You know, I'm going through a difficult time right now with my mother and um, it's, uh, when you have so many things going on, they are good distractions, but sometimes I don't focus on me and what's the right Mm. thing that I need in order to keep me where I need to be mentally instead Mm -hmm. of there's a lot of outgoing there's not a lot of incoming you know from Mm -hmm. myself and I think that's that's what I challenge with I mean I think it's constantly evolving but where I'm landing right now which is so so weird is that I feel like I'm going back to the beginning Mm. um and I am recently like nah you're the girl who does whatever like you've always you you're the person for no reason who put on a Stanford shirt and just manifested it. You're the person mm. that like heard about college week for will of fortune. And you said, I'm going to go be on will of fortune and you auditioned and got it. Like you just, you know, you never used to follow, like you, you would lead and do your own thing and unapologetically. So, and that was one of the reasons I had to kind of take a step back um, from Hollywood and like tune into my own thoughts and what's in my head because the busier you get, the more voices are that are in your ear and the more I think confused and disconnected you can get from who you are. Hmm. I want to tie it all together. 
<laughs> um, you said on that college will of fortune, that incredible, when you shout out my gift to you and you told this incredible story about your grandmother, when it's all said and done, Tracy, what is the gift you want to leave for the people that see your work? I always tend to write women that are messy and flawed and challenging, but also loving and like deeply wanting of social connection. That's why I always write about like female friendships and like it's always usually a love story between women. And the reason why that matters to me and what I want to leave behind is that um, we can be all things and we don't have to be perfect and we don't have to have the perfect relationship or the perfect man or woman, you know, whatever your sexual orientation is. We don't have to have any of that stuff to be whole. And so that's why I tend to always try to find like humanity and um, joy and singlehood or joy within women, like whether it's friendships or whether it's like, you know, siblings or mom or whatever, because I think the message too often is that we're not enough as we are. And so, yeah, I would say that's what I want to leave behind. Well, you are more than enough with a lot more to give. And I, uh, I applaud you for everything that you've accomplished. I hope I get a chance to meet you in person one day. Likewise. Sit down and talk to you and tell your dad I said hello as well. Okay, I will. <laughs> I will. Tracy, thank you. Thank you so much. That was the great Tracy Oliver. Now, I often feel this way after an interview, but I really hope that she and I could talk more over an old-fashioned or Negroni-style cocktail. I mean, that's just my vibe. But I love learning from her, and I know that she has so many more stories to tell. Don't forget to check out Tracy's latest show, Harlem, on Amazon Prime. On this week's Plus episode, Tracy talks about Hollywood mentorship, and how she has shifted from seeking mentors to being a mentor to dozens of young creators of color. You can watch the full episode of today's show on the NPR podcast channel on YouTube. And as always, remember, stay positive and let's keep it moving. The Limits is produced by Devin Schwartz, Mano Sundaresan, and Lena Sunsgiri. Our intern is Daniel Soto. Video production by Kaz Fantoni, Langston Sessoms, Christina Shaman, Iman Young, and Nick Michael. Our executive producers are Karen Kinney, Marilyn Williams, and Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of programming and audience development is Anya Grumman. Music by Ramteen Arab Louie. Special thanks to Christina Hardy, Rudy Correa, and Charlotte Rigby. This message comes from NPR sponsor, ShipBob. E-commerce logistics making you question why you started your business? Time to outsource fulfillment to the experts over at ShipBob. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. ShipBob. You can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, we go back in time to where it started. Like, really started. answer one important question. How did we get here? 
Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts.